Good afternoon. This is Deborah Zabladil with the IAOMS, and I am happy to be here to have another installment of, of the podcast series. I'm here today with Dr. Eric Dirks, and Dr. Dirks is with the Head and Neck Surgical Associates in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Dr. Dirks. Thank you for having me. Very happy to have you here today, and so much that I want to ask you. You have a really interesting background, and uh, one of the things that I read, and I thought maybe we could go this far back, is that while you were, or maybe before you were, um, in medical school or dental school, um, you had a, a career as an auto mechanic, and you made money to put yourself through um, further schooling as an auto mechanic. Is that correct? Well, that's correct. I, I really liked automotive technology, and I still do. And I worked as an auto mechanic uh, during college. Uh, then in dental school, I continued to work and transitioned more into sales so I could avoid having that grease embedded under my fingernails because back then, back in the 70s, we did dental school barehanded. Ah. And gloves came into general usage kind of toward the end. So I didn't want to go to the clinic with uh, dirty hands. It was so hard to get all the grease out from under your fingernails. Oh my goodness. So, uh, and I continued with that. I, uh, I bought and sold cars during dental school, flipped them, the term is. Uh huh, uh huh. And, uh, I'm still a, kind of a fan of automotive technology and I twist a wrench every once in a while. Okay, so you must be a very tactile person that you uh, were in, you know, auto mechanics and then you became a dentist and you're clearly someone that likes to work with their hands. Yep, I just, surgeon. Yeah, I was cut out for surgery. That's great, that's great. Okay, well I have some other questions that I'd love to ask you. Now one of the things that you mentioned um, earlier is that you had done a second residency. Um, so that is a little bit different than the path that a lot of um, OMF surgeons take. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, when I did my uh, training in the mid-70s at what is now the Christiana Medical Center in Delaware, uh, I was able to pass part one of the uh, U.S. Medical Licensure Exam. And with that, my home institution, the University of Louisville, thank you very much, allowed me to start medical school as a junior. And so my medical school was not coupled to my residency. So I went through the match. And at that time, head and neck cancer was done by general surgeons. And so I matched in general surgery at Parkland Hospital and started that program. Uh, I had good advice that I should switch into EMT, which I eventually did after a, a brief hiatus. And then I finished uh, otolaryngology head and neck surgery residency and then stayed on at the University of Texas Southwestern for five years on their faculty in EMT. Great friends with the oral surgery bunch and I kind of knew that's really where my heart was. Great. And you had mentioned uh, to me as we were uh, conversing before the podcast that um, what motivated you to really be interested in head and neck cancer? My, my grandfather graduated from what later became Ohio State University Dental School in 1899. Wow. And as a child, I knew him. And I knew that he died of oral cancer. And, and this fascinated me. And my parents tried to explain it to me, and I, I, I took it 
as it was, but it always fascinated me. And in dental school, uh, pathology, general pathology, and oral pathology were subjects I excelled in. I just loved it. And with that time to, to become an oral maxillofacial surgeon that did cancer in the United States was really not done very often. Going back in history, yes, there, there have been a small number of American oral necks who, who did that well at that time called oral surgeons. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I completed otolaryngology to, to include that in that cancer and what I did. That's fascinating. And, um, you know, so many people have those stories that inspire them, right, from their, their childhood or their, um, their formative years that kind of directs them in a certain way. So you have developed a passion around that. And tell us a little bit about how that has evolved. You know, you've been in practice, did you say over 30 years? Yes. So how has the, the treatment and the, you know, surgical realm of head and neck cancer changed over that period of time? I think the, the big changes uh, have been the introduction of microvascular free flap transplantation of tissue from other body parts to much more efficiently and effectively reconstruct tissues of the oral cavity, the throat, the neck, the skull base, the orbital sockets when they're resected uh, in a much, much better way. Uh, back in, in the old days, most head and neck and oral cancer patients did not do well and died miserable deaths. And if they didn't die a miserable death, they were tremendously disfigured by the primitive reconstruction that was available. So free flaps have changed everything. And now microvascular free flap reconstruction is an integral part of oral maxillofacial surgery among that subgroup that takes on oncologic surgery, just as it is otolaryngology, and also plastic surgery does microvascular free flaps. Now all three specialties do that. Another huge change that has occurred is our recognition of the human papillomavirus as a causative agent for the variant of squamous cell carcinoma that affects the oropharynx, specifically and usually the altine tonsils and the base of the tongue, the lingual tonsil area. This is a different disease. It has a much better prognosis, which is great, and it's treated by robotic surgery, and now there are a number of oral maxillofacial head and neck surgeons, fellowship trained, who do robotic surgery, just like our colleagues in otolaryngology do. And these things have dramatically changed the playing field. Of course, there could be a, a, a long list of other more minor things, but I think those are the two big ones in my career. Okay. And um, with the HPV vaccine, are you seeing, are you already seeing a drop in cases of um, HPV in patients? No, uh, we're not. You're it not will, yet? It will take a generation. Okay. Uh, but uh, everyone who hears the sound of my voice should vaccinate their children yeah. against HPV. Yeah. There's a newer vaccine, which is probably better, and that's a good one to do. Last time I checked, I think of sexual activity that brought all of us to this planet. And, <laughs> That's right. And that probably is going to go on. 
don't you think? I think so. Yeah, so we just need to protect ourselves from, from the HPV part of it. Right, absolutely. Um, so just in, if we can sort of flip this a little bit and talk about just some things that you've you know, experienced throughout your career. Um, what is one of the most difficult things that you think you've experienced in your career or a really tough decision you've had to make? I think one of the most difficult things is delivering bad news to patients and their families. And particularly within that is to give bad news that the family member was unprepared for. And I really advocate to my residents and fellows, you have to manage the expectations of your patient. And if you're going to give bad news, you, you have to preface your remarks. You have to say, you know, the, the biopsy showed something that, that I had suspected. I confirmed my, unfortunately confirmed my suspicions. So the family member or the patient gets ready, they steal their defenses, okay, here it comes, he's gonna give me bad news, I'm not mm -hmm. gonna pass out. And so the diagnosis is squamous cell carcinoma. And, you know, I've also had to deliver bad news about totally unexpected operative complications, things of this nature. That is tugging at the heartstrings every time I do it. I bet it does. And does it get easier over time? I mean, do you feel like you get more adept at those kinds of conversations? Yes, you do. Do you? Yeah, you do. It's like anything else, but it's still hard, and particularly involving pediatric and oncology patients. Sure, absolutely. Um, so tell us about your practice setting and why you, you know, I know you've moved around the country and you've had a lot of different um, experiences, but you're, you've been in Portland, Oregon, I think for 30 years, you said? Close to 30 years? It just about, it'll be 30 years uh, in 2020. Okay. So what prompted you to go to Portland and what, you know, it, it sounds like you started the, um, the clinic that you're at, um, the practice that you're at. Tell us a little bit about that. I had the good fortune to um, have been telephoned by Dr. Bryce Potter. And Bryce Potter was dual trained oral maxillofacial and ENT. There's a very small number of us weirdos that have taken this training at that time and currently. And I kind of thought I knew the names of all of them, but I'd never heard of this guy Potter. So he called me out of the blue uh, while I was a faculty member in at the University of Texas Southwestern. And we had a great conversation. He said, have you ever thought about private practice? And I said, no, I think I'm a career academician. So I kind of checked him out. He kind of checked me out. About a week later, he called me back and he said, uh, you, know, you know, I think we'd like to have you come up here and talk to us and maybe give a presentation. You do trauma also at our trauma center, Legacy Emanuel Hospital. So I did, and the rest was history. So uh, he, yeah, he brought me to Oregon. When I got there, I realized that, that, that he had set up a unique situation with one of the two level one trauma centers in the state, whereby oral maxillofacial surgery, specifically the head and neck, or, or his practice, which later we changed into the head and neck surgical associates, did 100% brain to lungs trauma. Oh, fantastic. And you've never looked back. 
Never looked back. That's great. Do you miss academia? Well, I kind of brought academia into the private sector because were I to have been on the faculty of, uh, well, where I to have stayed on the medical school faculty, my chairman, who was a good friend, he put some limits on me. Uh, the university put limits on me. Mm -hmm. uh, one was that at UT Southwestern at that time, only oral maxillofacial surgery could do mandible fractures. Mm. Well, I was an oral maxillofacial surgeon, but I wasn't in that department. Um. Anyway, we straightened all that out, but, but it didn't change. So I didn't do any mandible fractures at the mm -hmm. Parkland Hospital. I did at John Peter Smith Hospital. But it, it all, but in, in any event, I, uh, I, I think that creating an academically-based private practice worked out very well for us and for our colleagues at Oregon Health Science University with whom we, we share residents. Mm -hmm. Each of their residents spends one year on our service divided into four little components. But uh, they get a great experience and we do a large volume of all kinds of surgery, especially head and neck cancer. Oh, okay. Well, it sounds like you have forged a, a great career for yourself, and um, I hope it goes on for many years to come, or as long as you'd like it to. <laughs> anyway, um, so we'll, you know, we'll definitely have some newer uh, to the profession folks listening um, to this podcast, and I guess I'd like to ask you, what advice would you give to them? What advice would you give to your younger self? Um, if you were to look back 30, 35 years, what would you do differently, or how would you... Um, how would you persuade them to think? Uh, that's a great question, and that's why you asked. <laughs> uh, uh, one thing that I would stress to young people who are really taking the long view of going through a long period of training and having a practice that involves serious disease, like head and neck cancer, like major level one trauma center type trauma, would be to control your academic debt. So control your debt. Um, don't borrow a lot of money, or as little as possible. It's impossible to do without it. But control your debt, which will keep your options open. And expose yourself to various parts of the specialty that may not be directly available there are 10 fellowship programs currently in the U.S. in head and neck oncologic surgery. There are 10 others in cleft craniofacial surgery. And there are a number of others that are um, uh, different things related to TMJ surgery, to advanced orthognathic surgery. So a young resident who's training at a program that does not do head and neck cancer surgery does not mean that cannot do that. It just means they may need to do an external rotation to see what it's all about and then go to, to some center where they do this work and say, is this for me or not? And my group and I have welcomed a number of rotators from other institutions. Many of them are more or less pre-sold on a career in head and neck or, or trauma and reconstructive surgery. And then some think they are, they see what we do, how we do it, and they say, no, that's not for me, I'm going to go a different direction. Mm -hmm. 
but get that experience during residency. Uh, and, and also place no limitations. So people place no limitations upon yourself, so you can do anything. Uh, it is not necessary to have a medical degree. Many single degree friends have had great careers. That said, going the dual degree route does help. Uh, and I, I think my single degree friends are probably admit that as well. But you can do it. Yeah. Single degree. Okay, great. So I want to go back to something you said at the beginning of that answer, and that is manage your debt. Um, how does one, there's so much discussion about this, particularly in the United States with, um, student loan debt, et cetera. How, how would you suggest that they kind of look at that, that they maybe go more slowly through school to work, their, work off their debt, or what are your thoughts there? That's a tough one because some, many dental schools are very expensive. Uh, In-state tuition is usually better than out-of-state, so it would behoove someone to go to their in-state school, look for scholarship opportunities. And I thank the University of Louisville that I got a partial scholarship my last two years of dental school. And thank you very much, U of L. So look for these, these opportunities and take advantage of them. Uh, whenever possible, do some work on the outside, moonlight. Gotcha. There are opportunities to moonlight and it can be in healthcare, or mm -hmm. it could be in auto mechanics. That's right. So you can figure out a way to do it to keep keep the debt low. Uh, that I think is critical because having a low and manageable debt really broadens your your horizons of what your choices can be. Right. There are decisions that you can't make if you are just worrying about covering your monthly payment, right? After you get out of school. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Eric Dirks. Really appreciate you being with us today and um, all of your knowledge and, and wisdom on your career and um, what people should think about going forward. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Again, this is Deborah Zabladil on behalf of IAOMS and um, thank you for being with us today as part of the IAOMS podcast series. Thank you once again for listening to the IAOMS podcast series. IAOMS members receive additional benefits such as access to the IJOMS, educational resources, reduced rates for conferences, and more. To join or renew your membership, please visit www.iaoms.org. Keep up to date with our weekly podcast by following IAOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news. See you next week.